Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. This is episode 28, The Seminole Heights Slayer. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. Thank you to all the new listeners and followers of this podcast. The podcast continues to grow at a rate I never expected, and it fuels my drive to put out more and more quality episodes of the podcast, and you guys are awesome. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please join the many people who have liked and followed the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page, and more information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com, and if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon under True Blue Crime Productions. Any donation level helps, and will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. Also, for no cost, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thank you so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. The late 1500s was a time of exploration for Europeans that had discovered the quote, end quote, West Indies. Stories of fortunes of gold and fountains of youth led monarchs to fund expeditions to this world of wonder. But not all trips ended with ships filled with gold and powerful storms wiped out entire fleets as they sailed the coasts of the Gulf states, especially Florida. For those that managed to survive their sinking ship, native tribes in the area were not known to be friendly to the white-skinned strangers that used gunpowder and metal swords. In the mid-1500s, a ship sailing from Colombia to Spain was claimed by a storm, and some of the crew survived and made it to shore. They were quickly captured by members of the Calusa tribe of central Florida and made into slaves, and most of them were sacrificed. But one man, Hernanda de Escalante Fontanda, the son of a Spanish official, managed to survive by being a sort of court jester for the tribe and eventually traveled with the tribe all over Florida, meeting other tribes, learning their languages, and eventually writing five documents that are still used today to study some of the Native Americans of the pre-colonial times in Florida. Hernando was rescued from captivity by Florida's first governor and served as an interpreter and guide for many years. It was Hernando that first told the Spanish of the Bay of Tampa, which was the Caluso name for a large tribal city on a bay surrounded by barrier islands. The city and its bay would be named several things over the years and be a point of confusion for cartographers for many years, but in 1849 it was known by settlers outside of the U.S. Army outpost of Fort Brook as Tampa Town, which was shortened to Tampa in 1855. In 1901, a streetcar line between downtown Tampa and the suburb of Sulphur Springs meant that people could live in a quiet, spread-out neighborhood and catch a ride into the city for work. By 1911, a developer named T. Roy Young set his sights on building the first suburb north of Tampa, a place he called Seminole Heights. He acquired 40 acres of land and set about building a grid of east-to-west bungalow-style homes, which sold for $5,000 each, which is roughly the equivalent of $160,000 today. Another developer followed Young's idea and built a development around this area that is still known by its 100-year-old nickname of Suwannee Heights. The entire area in 2003 benefits from its historic feel, the year-round warm climate, and the influx of New Age restaurants, bars, and shops. But in 2017, the residents of the community were living in fear. 
Someone was gunning down people at random, and police were desperate to catch the killer, a man the media dubbed the Seminole Heights Slayer. It all began on the corner of 15th Street and East Frierson Avenue on October 9th of 2017. This area is just a few blocks off US Highway 41, running east-west through Seminole Heights, near a Walmart and a couple dozen other businesses. Around 9 p.m., a 22-year-old man named Benjamin Mitchell was waiting at a bus stop. He lived about a block from the bus stop and was catching the bus to his girlfriend's house for a visit. Suddenly, Benjamin was shot four times and died from these wounds. Surveillance footage from a nearby residence captured a suspect walking towards the bus stop around nine minutes before the shooting. The footage is clear enough to show the suspect with what appears to be a phone in his right hand. The same camera captured the suspect running from the scene within 25 seconds of the murder. A witness called 911 and stated she saw a black male running from the homicide scene. Two Sig brand 40 cal fired cartridge casings were recovered at the scene. So we'll take a second step back and talk about a couple things. One is when I was adding this to the list of cases I wanted to cover. One of the reasons I did is because I don't remember much about this being in the news. And when I thought back to it, I tried to figure out as we're going to cover, you know, we've got multiple murders that did cause this extreme fear and panic in a major U.S. metropolitan area. And I just don't remember it being covered much in the news at least at the national news level and then i realized that this is all happening the week after the las vegas massacre in 2017 that occurred on october 1st of 2017 and that just due to the the massive tragedy that it was the loss of life and everything i mean that dominated the news cycle for the better part of a month which is exactly the time period that these murders are going to occur. So I want to say that outside of the Tampa area, there wasn't a lot of national coverage of this just because it was buried underneath the massive story that was the Las Vegas massacre. So that's one reason I wanted to cover it is because, I, A, I wanted to learn what happened here after kind of doing some real quick research on it. And then once I did the research on it, I wanted to know why why it wasn't so well covered and, and that's kind of I guess the best guess that I can make. What police have here is a 22 year old black male named Benjamin Mitchell who shot dead at a bus stop and police are going to have this camera footage which is coming from like a home camera system so either a ring system or an exterior camera on somebody's home which it's not something we've talked about because we haven't done a lot of cases i guess i remember in the christopher watts case we talked about the neighbor's surveillance camera catching uh, shanann watts coming home after her flight in the early morning hours and then only chris watts truck leaving the next day that was captured on the security camera so but what i'm trying to say here is we're seeing this more and more in investigations where people's home security cameras are capturing or, or I should say are being kind of an eyewitness to some of these crimes and that's what we're seeing here. So police early on are going to have some idea that they've got this black male suspect uh, who was on his phone before the shooting and now he's seen running away from the, the shooting. But at this point it's 
a single homicide, and I don't mean to, to say that to downplay it, but they aren't going to have a lot of information from this. Now, they're going to look at different things to try to find a motive here. And one of the things, as we've talked about before, is victimology. And there isn't a lot of information that I could find about each of these victims online, you know, their, their lifestyle, their past. Given this guy's age, again, it's I'm not... I'm not going to attribute these suggestions to Benjamin Mitchell because I don't know anything about him, didn't find anything in the research, but this is police are gonna look at his lifestyle to see if it's gonna play a role in his murder. So again, I'm not saying this is the case, but if he's a member of a gang, that's a big clue as to why he may have been shot at what appears to be random, but in fact it, it's a some form of gang slaying for whatever purpose or do you have a case you know he's going to visit uh, his girlfriend's house does the girlfriend have other boyfriends that may have just found out about benjamin and decided that you know he wasn't going to go to the girlfriend's house anymore he was somebody was going to kill him before he got there so again they're going to look at this victimology to try to tie some type of a suspect to the victim in this case with the last resort being that this is some type of a random shooting so what they do have is they have the couple sig brand 40 caliber fired cartridge cases and that, that's going to be important here because that's going to keep coming up but they have a couple of these cartridge cases recovered at the scene they're likely going to have some ballistic evidence on the bullets themselves recovered from uh, benjamin's body but as for any of the, the motive, anything in regards to what happened here to then tie it into a suspect, they're not going to have at this point. However, two days later on October 11th at 8.40 p.m., several people call 911 to report hearing gunshots in the area of North 11th Street near New Orleans Avenue. This intersection is roughly half a mile from the location of Benjamin Mitchell's murder, and that occurred roughly 48 hours prior. Police would check the area and find nothing. However, on October 13th, a city lawn mowing crew would find the body of 32-year-old Monica Hoffa in an abandoned lot in the area where the gunshots on the 11th were heard. Hoffa had been shot three times, and five Sig Brand 40 caliber Smith & Wesson cartridge cases were found in the area. It would be later learned that Hoffa was on the way to meet a male friend around the time of the gunshots reported on October 11th, but he never met up with her and never heard from her again. So as we step aside here now, now police have two shootings within 48 hours of each other, right on the edge of 48 hours of each other. They've got the same fired cartridge cases and they're actually going to be able to ballistically link these because I think I've explained this before, but when the firing pin strikes the bullet, which is what ignites the primer that ignites the gunpowder that sends the bullet out of the gun, when that firing pin strikes that primer, there's a mark that's left on the primer by the firing pin. And every firing pin is going to be unique. Now the overall characteristics of it can tell you what potential make or model of the gun is, but when you look at it microscopically, you're gonna find variations of the indentations at the, the edges of the strike point that at a microscopic level can tell you 
if two cartridge cases found at two different sites are going to come from the same firing pin. Now, granted, firing pins in certain weapons like your AR-15s or rifles can be changed out a little bit easier. The firing pins inside of a a Glock handgun, which is what this is going to be, is a little bit harder to do. It can be done, so technically in some circumstances a firing pin match on two different cartridges could come from two different firearms in general, but the vast majority of time, and especially with handguns, people are not going to mess with the firing pin, and so you're going to have once you've matched firing pins on two cartridge cases from two different homicides, you're going to have the same gun involved in both both of the homicides. Now also, in the case of semi-automatic handguns, the casing itself is going to have what's also called extraction marks. And these marks are left behind when the extractor, the mechanism that grabs onto the fired cartridge case and helps expel it from the gun, before the next round is loaded into the chamber. These marks are also going to be unique to each gun, so even if somebody changes the firing pin between two weapons, there are going to be other marks on the casings themselves that can indicate whether it came from the same gun or in the rare chance where somebody would swap firing pins, you'd still have the extraction marks to bring. Uh, as evidence to show that whichever guns extracted those casings would be related to the crime. So it's not just the firing pins, but ballistics in general have a lot of different ways to match the bullets and case, uh, cartridge cases from certain guns. So although there's a little bit of a delay in finding uh, Monica's body, police are quickly able to ascertain that, that these murders occurred 48 hours from each other, within a half mile of each other, and using the same gun. However, Benjamin Mitchell is a 22-year-old black male, and Monica Hoffa is a 32-year-old white female. So again, the victimology is going to actually, in this case, make things more difficult because you don't have anything matching except for the geography and the weapon in this case nothing between these two victims indicates that there's any connection because that was looked at immediately whether monica hoffa would have known benjamin mitchell and again that falls back to somebody involved in their life that would want both of them dead police find no connection there so they're left with now we have two victims and now the victimology doesn't really help that much in terms of let's just even say that Mitchell was a gang-related slaying and Hoffa has no connection to, to any gangs. Now you either have the same gun used in two different shootings and I guess you could say maybe in the case of Mitchell if that was gang-related and in the case of Hoffa maybe it was robbery, robbery gone wrong. You could maybe try to say that the motives are different. One was a gang-related homicide. One was a rob robbery gone wrong homicide. Just happens to be likely the same suspect or for sure the same gun. But you know, police are just 
at a loss at this point because the only other option is one that they fear is that someone is out there picking targets at random and killing them. And why I bring up the, the even the demographics of the victims are so different is because a lot of the times what you find with serial killers is that they have, at least in these types of situations where they're picking out targets, they have a specific target in mind that they're going to kill. Now, if it's a serial killer that is involved in, in rape and homicide, that this is even more prevalent when you have serial killers looking for a specific type of victim, I guess is the way to put it. But in this case, these spree shooters, these random killings, you know, this is the, the fact that there is no link demographically between the victims, police have to start to feel like this is what they're dealing with. And a week later, on October 19th, a 20-year-old autistic man named Anthony Neoba was shot dead at 8 p.m. on 15th Avenue near Wilder Avenue. This is only two blocks south of the first shooting and on the same street. Anthony had taken the wrong bus home from work and was walking the rest of the way when someone shot him once in the head. A single SIG brand S&W 40 cal fired cartridge case was found at the scene. So now police have three different victims, each with a very different victimology. We now have a black male, a white female, and an autistic Hispanic male. And the only thing that's in common between them is, again, the weapon and the geography of, of where this stuff is occurring. So as far as I could read, there was no indication that any of the victims were robbed. So it doesn't even appear to be someone who is targeting individuals to try to get you know, cash off of them or anything like that. So, and, and if that was the case, again, the, the victims themselves, people that are either coming home from work or going to visit a friend or, or whatever, they don't seem to be people that you would target as having a large amount of cash on them anyway. Uh, robbery's gone wrong. You're more likely to see an where somebody tries to rob somebody leaving a bank or at an ATM or you know involved in some type of a business deal. So again, police are still at a loss now and at this time they now have three homicides within a week and a half all geographically linked to the same area and you're going to start to get some panic in the area. The final murder occurred on November 14th at 4:50 a.m. Ronald Felton, a 60-year-old volunteer, was shot and killed on his way to hand out food at a local food bank. The crime occurred just north of where victim number two's body had been found. Four Sig Brand Smith & Wesson 40 caliber fired cartridge cases were found at the scene, and witnesses stated they saw a 6-foot to 6-foot 2 tall, skinny but athletic black male shoot the victim and then run from the scene. All four shootings would be linked ballistically as being fired from the same gun and they all occurred in the same area of Southeast Seminole Heights. So I wanted to get all of the homicides out at one time. And, and I'm sorry, since we've covered demographics, Richard uh, Ronald Felton is a, a, a 60 year old black male. So now we at, actually add another demographic into this, which is the closer to elderly side of things, I guess, at, at 60 years old. 
because the targets before that, I mean, Monica looked like a young 32, Benjamin was 22, and uh, Anthony was 20. So even before that, you had people being targeted in their early 20s. And again, Monica looked really young, so she could have passed for being in her 20s, even at 32. So at least you had that demographic tying people together, and all of a sudden you have this 60-year-old that that's targeted apparently for no reason. And this, this was the first one too that occurred in the early morning hours. So there are some subtle differences. This is 4.50 a.m. and the other ones all, all occur between eight and nine p.m. But there may be a reason for that as we get into it as well. So, so here's the timeline of the investigation. On October 13th, this is when Monica Hoffa's body is found. Police affirm, affirmatively link the shootings of the first two victims via ballistics. They would increase patrols in the area and urge people to not walk alone at night. And I found this interesting because this was 2017. And when you read stuff about extra patrols and urging people not to walk alone at night, that to me brings up ideas like I'm listening to a podcast covering something that occurred in the 60s or 70s, like the time of the Zodiac Killer or the Son of Sam or the original Night Stalker. To me, reading it, I don't know why because logically it makes just as much sense in 2017 as it would to to say that to people in the 60s or 70s i just feel like that's not a phrase that's used very often and it really really reflects the terror and panic that was existing in the community after these two first two homicides are linked and it was only going to get worse as more homicides occurred and so now by october 31st which they've had the three homicides to this point, a task force of over 50 police officers with assists from the Florida Highway Patrol and the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office assisted in a safe night of trick-or-treating in Seminole Heights. The, the panic, uh, the fear had reached such a level that parents obviously did not want to send their kids out trick-or-treating throughout the neighborhoods because they've had, to this point, three people in a very small geographical area just shot at random at night. And so I don't think there's any parent out there that was going to be comfortable just sending a small child or even walking their small child out to go trick-or-treating. So the area got saturated with police officers uh, in an effort to, to allow people to have this, this moment. Because it's one thing we don't talk about very often is the effect that some of these things have on children. I, I mean, I talked about in the very first episode how the disappearance of Jacob Wetterling when I was eight years old has stuck with me my entire life. I, I still can remember the news stories, uh, the night, you know, the nightly news watching and, and getting updates about the case when I was, when I was only eight years old. So if you can't trick or treat for a year because your parents are too afraid that you might get shot and killed, I mean, that's going to stick with you the rest of your life as well. So police are making every effort on this to try to, mitigate the amount of fear and panic in the community and and provide this this safe trick-or-treat experience but it, it again it really speaks to the, the the amount of fear and panic that was going on in this one area at the time that these crimes were occurring now as they're investigating it it's during the month of october and into november officers would be canvassing the areas of the shootings this is where they're going to get some of the surveillance videos and they obtained 
this security video showing the suspect was wearing a hoodie that showed up on video as light colored but was actually believed to be black due to eyewitness descriptions. And this is due to how black is captured on IR enhanced cameras. So you'll see a lot of these, these ring doorbell cameras or even higher end security cameras on businesses and that kind of stuff. Once things go dark, they can't rely on ambient light. So they switch over to this IR, uh, this infrared light source recording. And when they do that, black items on IR and it's, I'm not going to explain the lengthy process of why it is this way. I'll just say that they, they appear like they're light colored. So you might see somebody running on video in one of these IR camera things, and it looks like they're wearing a slate gray or even a lighter gray hooded sweatshirt. And in reality, if that was in actual ambient lighting, it would be a, a, a completely black sweatshirt. So that's the difficult thing sometimes police will release video from some of these instances and say we're looking for a suspect wearing this outfit and they don't always say hey but the outfit might be black because the other problem is the outfit could be light gray or gray and it's being captured properly by the ir but you you have to assume it's black so this this case they have eyewitnesses that can also say no through our eyes, which we're going to see the, the same color no matter what, we don't have an IR setting on us, it's going to, they're going to be able to verify we're looking for somebody with, with a black hooded sweatshirt. At the same time, agents with the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms reached out to all people who had recently purchased Glock 40 caliber handguns from local stores. And this goes back to what I talked about with the firing pin is that the the bullets themselves narrow it down to a caliber and we haven't talked about it on here uh, uh, before but every bullet manufactured has a caliber to it the caliber is a measurement of the size of the bullet and most people with true crime knowledge will, will know this, understand this, but I just want to break it down. This is the first time I'm doing it for the podcast. You can't fire, I should say in most cases, you can't fire a, car, a caliber that is different than what is designed for that gun. I say most cases because there are some calibers or some guns that will fire multiple different calibers just because the calibers are so close. Uh, in size and the cartridges are interchangeable between the two but the vast majority of guns out there if they are designed to shoot a 45 caliber they will not shoot a 40 caliber if they're designed to you know shoot a 0.223 caliber they will not shoot a 0.308 caliber uh, and and the reason that's important is because there's granted there are some very common calibers of weapons out there but you narrow down your list of potential weapons or makes and models of weapons just by getting the caliber alone and then they're going to use that firing pin mark and compare that to a library of possible firing pin marks to see if they can narrow it down to potentially a make or a model and gun manufacturers such as Glock will make 
three or four maybe models, main models of each caliber of handgun. So it's actually, if you can narrow it down to the caliber and the fact that it's a Glock handgun, you've actually eliminated a large portion of potential handgun sales or handgun ownership. And that's what the ATF did here. And so they're gonna look at recent purchases of 40 caliber Glock handguns, and they're gonna send, in this case, actually text messages to each person who had put in an application to purchase one of these handguns. And with the understanding that they likely wouldn't get a response from someone who had committed these murders with a handgun saying, you know, yep, that was me, I purchased this gun and then I shot three people. But at the same time, this is a way, I guess, if, if you purchased one in early October before these shootings occurred and then three days later it got stolen, maybe you reply to the ATF saying, yes, I bought that gun, but it was stolen three days later, and now they're going to have record of the serial number. Maybe they're looking for that specific gun if they find it in a traffic stop and run the serial number this is potentially the gun that's involved in these shootings you know as i've said all along in investigations information is is what you're looking for that's that's your gold out of the gold mine and sometimes leads pan out and sometimes they don't but one of the people that they're going to reach out to and send a text to is a 24 year old man named howell emmanuel donaldson the third Howard Donaldson III, known as the, by the nickname Trey, was born on January 26, 1995 in North Carolina, but moved to the Tampa area when he was a child. In 2017, he was still living in the area and working at a McDonald's restaurant located on 13th Avenue, just blocks from two of the shootings and a half mile from the other two. On November 28th at 2.38 in the afternoon, a manager at that McDonald's approached a uniform officer sitting in his squad in the parking lot. And I also read several articles that said the officer was actually eating inside the restaurant in his uniform, but one or two articles said parking lot in a squad, two said eating in the restaurant. So all I can say is that the uniform officer is within sight of this manager at McDonald's and she approaches the officer and hands him a McDonald's bag containing a 40 caliber Glock handgun that is loaded with SIG brand S&W 40 caliber ammunition. The manager told the officer that an employee named Howell Donaldson had handed her the bag with the gun and told her not to look in the bag but to get rid of it for him. Donaldson had voiced his desire to leave the state and turned in his uniform and requested the manager secure an advance on his last paycheck so he could cash it out before leaving town. Donaldson told the manager that the item in the bag was related to his mother's final wish and that she should bury it deep where no one can find it. The officer, realizing the firearm was possibly related to the four unsolved killings, combined with the strange story and behaviors of Donaldson, radioed for backup, and when Donaldson returned for his paycheck, officers were waiting and arrested him without incident. Donaldson consented to a search of his vehicle, in which police found clothing stained with blood that matched the description from the eyewitnesses and the security video. Now, I'll pause here because this is actually going to come up and be a major point of contention in some of the pre-trial stuff for this case. 
I'm always shocked when I see that police departments still do this consent search thing. So basically how this goes down is police at this point have a pretty good idea just based on the geography of the location, the gun, the ammunition, and this guy's behavior that this might be the person responsible for these four killings. So they can go about this one of two ways. One, they can do this traffic stop on him, get him out, detain him as a part of the investigation, see what they gain as a result of of a consent search and everything. And then if everything is pointing towards him being the killer, arrest him and you know, gather more evidence and prepare for trial. The other option is to formally arrest him just based on what you have so far and then get a search warrant for his person and his vehicle and make sure that all the stuff that you obtain is done legally and properly. Because the problem with it is when you stop somebody as a police officer, you have a right to stop and detain them. You don't have to arrest them. And this is a very gray area of the law that when you stop somebody, you'll the police officer, to decide whether or not that person's under arrest, the police officer will often be asked later on in court if that person was free to go. So during a lot of these investigatory stops where somebody is stopped, say, on the interstate, and is giving the highway patrol officer a strange story about driving to Mexico for a day and then turning around and coming back. And this highway patrol officer believes that they might be smuggling drugs. The highway patrol officer has no probable cause to arrest the person at that point, but they are allowed to continue to expand the scope of that investigation. However, that person needs to be free to go if they decide, because at that point the officer has no evidence that that person has actually committed a crime. Now what gets even more into the gray area is that that vehicle, I should say the vehicle is one of many exemptions to a search warrant. You don't have to have a search warrant to search a vehicle because it's considered a movable piece of property. It's So the exemption to the search warrant for automobiles is based on the idea that if you don't search that vehicle at that location there's a, and you let that person drive off in the vehicle, your evidence drives off with that person. So you can get consent to search a vehicle. You can search a vehicle if you have, without a search warrant, if you have probable cause to do so, which at that point may be plain view. You see, you know, a marijuana joint in the ashtray in a, in a state where marijuana joints are illegal. You see you know, enough evidence to get into that vehicle. You don't need to stop everything, pause, and get a search warrant. At least that's how things, that's how the letter of the law is written. However, there are going to be a lot of arguments to various cases where if you've detained somebody and let's say you put them in the back of your squad car and you've asked them for consent to search their vehicle, they kind of feel like the only way they're going to get out of that situation is letting you search the vehicle. They're not really consenting at that point. And that's where a lot of this gets into this gray area. So there's sometimes where police officers will have to leave the back door open because you can't 
unlock a back door from the back of a squad car. So once you've closed the doors on that person, they're essentially not free to leave. They can't leave on their own accord. So in states like Minnesota in the middle of winter, where you're putting somebody in the back of a squad car and closing the doors to keep them warm, they may turn around and say they didn't feel like they were free to go. Uh, other states where it's or Minnesota in the summer, you can leave somebody just sitting on the curb outside of their car and just kind of say, hey, you're free to go if you want, but I'm gonna search this vehicle. You can hang out if you want to, or you can leave. You're not under arrest, but I need to search, you know. Then you get a little bit more into the, you're in the okay area, and that's what happened in this case from the sounds of it, but I question that because I can't imagine any police officer that thinks that they have the uh, quadruple homicide suspect in their custody that's gonna be okay with saying, well, if he changes his mind and he wants to leave, we have the car here, he's free to go. And that's, I think, where the defense attorneys were gonna argue some of this stuff. So whenever I see consent to search, and that includes houses, cars, whatever it may be, especially in a case as big as this one, I always question why it's, why they didn't just tow the vehicle back to a precinct and have a search warrant drafted to search the vehicle because once you get a judge signing that search warrant and you can spell it all out for the judge that you think you're going to find evidence of these four homicides in that car once that judge signs that search warrant you're you're golden then nothing in that vehicle is thing and then if you want to let him go while you do that i don't know why you would but i guess you can but everything you have to that point Again, it's a, it's a real gray area. Did they have enough to arrest him at that point? I didn't don't have all the specifics of what they were looking at, but if he's a guy that matches the description, he's got a gun that matches the description with kind of a crazy story, he's trying to get out of town, and eventually, within a very short amount of time getting into this car, they're able to find clothing that matches the killer's description and blood on that clothing. I think you have a much better case if you stop, freeze the scene, get a search warrant, do everything. But ultimately, ultimately it's not going to make a difference, but I just thought it was a good point to take an aside and talk about these consent searches and why when I see them in cases, if yeah, if it's for some drugs in a vehicle, it's not the end of the world if that gets tossed out and the guy doesn't get charged. But when you have four victims and four victims' families that you're going to bring this investigation to the courts for you want to do everything right it just kind of again i scratch my head and just go why would you do a consent search but anyway back to the case a further investigation is going to show that donaldson's cell phone showed him in the area of each murder at the time of the murders and remember there was the first security video although it was grainy in terms of identifying the suspect they were able to see that he was on his phone manipulating his phone as he was walking towards the first murder scene. So they know that the killer is going to have an active phone ping in the area of the murder right before the murder occurs. And they're able to prove each time there's a murder that, that Donaldson fo Donaldson's phone is pinging in the area of the murder at the time of the murder. And this is the part that I didn't find a whole lot of information on. There is some suggestions going on here in a couple of the articles, but because he's, this isn't going to go all the way through a full trial, we don't, 
I think, ever really get the true motive that was going on here. Now, one motive I can see is that, the, again, he ends up buying this gun a couple days after that Las Vegas shooting. And I don't know, again, you could argue maybe there's some notoriety seeking going on here. Like he saw how much coverage the Las Vegas shooter got and he thought if if he can build up a body count, then he's going to be famous too. But investigators are also going to find that after each of the killings, Donaldson's phone showed that he visited adult-themed websites on the internet after these killings and it didn't say which site this was but it said that the website involved interactive models and so it suggests that there was some type of a sexual turn-on or a need of a sexual release after committing these homicides so it's possible that that the the level of control that he felt after taking somebody else's life there was a sexual component to it and that motivated him so we're never going to get out of his mouth what the motives were for each of these murders and it could ultimately be a combination of both the the fame and the control and everything coming together Um, but it just during the investigation officers were looking at you know what's he doing and he's also looking at news articles related to the homicides because we again we have a over a month there where where these killings are going on and he's not caught so as the the media circus kind of around this builds in the tampa area more and more newspapers and news organizations are running stories about this uh, seminal Heights slayer and also called the seminal Heights serial killer and he's reading these articles about himself, about his crime. So it's, it's clear that he's making an effort to check out what people are saying about his crimes and, and whatnot. So again, is it fame and notoriety? Is it sexual? Is it both? There, there's never a definitive answer, but you just kind of have to come to your own conclusion based off of that. The gun itself, the one that was found in the bag, would ballistically match all four homicides and Donaldson was charged with all all four killings. It was found that Donaldson legally purchased the firearm on October 3rd and picked it up on October 7th after the mandatory waiting period. And the day that he picked it up on October 7th, he also purchased a 20-round box of SIG brand S&W 40 caliber ammo or ammunition. And this was just two days before the first murder. So again, is this related two days after the Vegas shooting, he's buying this gun and then he's getting the box of ammunition. And and the thing that for me that I questioned was ultimately why he stopped because it was, if you look at the timeline, he commits three killings in a week and a half. And then there's this big pause and he commits his last killing on, I think it was November 14th. And then now he's turning in the gun on November 28th. So it's not like this is over the course of four days and the heat is getting so intense that he has to get rid of this gun. It's almost like he's just done with this crime spree and now he wants to go start a new life somewhere. And so part of me thought if you count up the number of times he shot or fired, you're pretty close to 20 
bullets expended at that point, uh, depending on how much was left in the gun. There couldn't have been much left. I think he used most of that 20 round box. So was he afraid to go buy another box of ammunition and, and bring the heat on him? So it's just kind of like whatever he had from that single purchase the day he picked up his gun. Once that ran out, he was done with his crimes. I mean, the, the entire thing of giving the gun in a bag to your manager at work I don't get either and asking her to bury it deep it had to have been some type of a pure panic move where he felt like somebody was right on his tail and maybe he was being followed or surveilled or something to the point that he couldn't get rid of the gun and thinking that somebody else would wherever he buried it or got rid of it somebody would find it or if somehow this manager followed through with his request and he got caught down the road he could never tell investigators where the gun was I, I, again I can't get inside this head guy's head to even know why he killed the people he did let alone why he handed the gun over to his manager at his part time fast food job I just, it boggles me. I'm glad he did because that's what ultimately got him caught and arrested but it just to me a lot of the decisions that are going on here I can't I can't understand them now, Donaldson trial was set to begin on a August 10th of 2020, and the defense won a major motion when they requested he be tried for each crime separately. This meant each case would need to go before a new jury, and it would be harder for prosecutors to present a clear and concise case to each jury. The defense won this because they were able to say that, yes, we admit that every murder was committed by the same gun, but there wasn't proof that, other than the circumstantial evidence, of his phone being in the area, which of course he lived and worked in the area, but basically saying we don't have eyewitnesses saying that Donaldson is at each of these shootings and nothing tying the shootings together other than the gun, and a gun is a transient object. It can be carried and used by different people, so you need to prove that he actually committed each murder, not just that the gun that he gave to the manager was used in all four murders therefore he shot all four people so it makes the case harder for the prosecutors and they were also going to argue as i mentioned before that that donaldson's arrest and the search of his car was illegal and it's called the fruit of the poison tree if you make an illegal arrest and do an illegal search everything that comes as a result of that is inadmissible in court so all the clothing with the victim's blood on it everything so all you have to do all that prosecutors be left with is the proximity of, of him to each of the the murders via the phone and the fact that he gave the murder weapon to the manager there wouldn't be as much direct proof that he was the one that committed the actual murder so the defense is actually trying to to, to make things very difficult on the prosecution despite what everybody believed to be a pretty open and shut case but it was at the hearing in which they were going to, the defense was ready to argue that the, the search and seizure was illegal, that a surprise plea deal was announced. So on May 1st, 2023, so just a couple months ago at the time of this recording, Donaldson pled guilty to all four murders and was sentenced to four consecutive life sentences without parole. So again, we have four consecutive, and I confirmed that multiple places, so he's got no chance of being paroled just by the no parole part of it but four consecutive life sentences he's he's not seeing society again which is a good thing for all of us 
Prosecutors had been seeking the death penalty. However, the survivors of the four victims agreed to this plea deal that took the death penalty off the table, which, again, any of these states we do with the death penalty, it seems like when the death penalty is in play, we get plea deals. And I'm not advocating for the death penalty because it should, I think it should be a, a false threat that gets people to, to plea. I, I think that there is a, a valid use for the death penalty in cases where the crimes are so heinous that death penalty is the right answer. And that's just my political or my philosophical view, I should say, of it. And yours can be different. That's fine. But every time I mention this, I realize I don't want people to think I'm advocating just to have this this fake threat of, well, we'll kill you if you don't plea, and then not actually back it up if it goes to trial and they seek the death penalty and the person gets convicted of death. I'm not going to be the hypocrite that says, well, I don't think they should be put to death then at that point. I think it should only be used as a false threat. So I just notice that almost every case we cover where the death penalty is in play, we get these plea deals. So that's the case of the um, Seminole Heights Slayer. And so I do have a hero for this story, which would be her name is Delonda Walker. She's the manager at McDonald's who handed over the gun and told police about Donaldson in time for him to be arrested. He had searched that day for plane tickets or how much it cost for a plane flight out of Tampa. So it's pretty clear that had he not returned to McDonald's at the time that he did after she'd already given the gun to the police officer, he was ready to go on the run. Now, granted, he may have been caught rather quickly. He may not have been, and we don't know, but it's very very likely that if he was able to get away, and this is again where I question the whole story about the gun and getting rid of the gun and burying the gun or whatever. He, it was said that he ran to do an errand between giving the gun to the manager and then coming back. And to me, if, if he's leaving, well, I guess if he's leaving on an airplane, He's not going to be able to take the gun with him, but if he was just leaving without being on an airplane, I don't understand why he wouldn't take the gun with him. But anyway, she did the right thing. Delonda turned that gun over to the police and did it quickly enough that he was able to be arrested. I mean, how many of these cases have we covered now where the inaction of people, whether it be the Apple Store employees in the Lululemon case or some of the people that didn't call the police during the East Area Rapist uh, stuff where their inactions led to situations where the uh, suspect was able to get away and commit further crimes or or commit the crime in the case of the Lululemon case. So Delana likely saved at least one or two lives, if not more, by her actions that day. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. Hope everyone has a great day. I'll talk to you later. Goodbye.